Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle from the Table in Uniontown. Thanks for tuning into our podcast this week. We're happy you're here. This is the live recording from this Sunday's sermon. We're currently in our sermon series, A Living Faith, discussing the book of James. We hope that as you listen, you'll more deeply understand the truth of God's word and how much he loves you. Let's jump in. Good morning, church. We are still in our series called A Living Faith, where we're walking through the entirety of this letter written by James. And I have to say, uh, I've gotten so much positive feedback on this series so far. So you all apparently love James's letter, uh, and so do I. Five stars, great letter, glad it's speaking to you. Uh, we're going to be in James 4, 1 through 12 this morning. I'll give you a moment to turn there in your Bibles if you brought one. If you didn't bring a Bible, it'll be on the screens behind me. And if you don't have a Bible at all, or at least one that you can understand, please see me afterwards. I would love to put one in your hands for you to take home and keep and read and love. The reading. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. James has, has not minced his words in describing Christian community as messy. Christians are guilty of all sorts of, of wrong behavior, and, and this is just a fact. Churches are full of people who will make mistakes and who will need your forgiveness. You would do well to forgive them with the full understanding of the forgiveness that you've received, and thus the forgiveness that you will eventually need from them as well. But while James wants you to understand that if you've received mercy, you should show mercy, and while James wants you to believe deep down in the recesses of your heart that mercy triumphs over judgment, James also wants you to understand why you do what you do, why you hurt people, why people hurt you. Not just, not just forgive one another, but maybe be able to answer the question of how can we change? How can we be different? How can we maybe begin to require a little less forgiveness? And so today, still talking about wisdom and speech, we talk about some things that, that we need to get right in our life, and he warns against them. He warns against selfish coveting, friendship with the world, 
and being judgmental. So we're going to cover those three things this morning. Then at the end, we'll discuss uh, the way forward that I believe that James gives us. So he says, what, what are the sources of war? What is the sources of war and fights among you? James asks that question. You have these disagreements with one another. You have discord. You have relational strife. And we need to get to the source of those things. Issues you have, sin issues you have. Because the stuff that comes out of you, the, the stuff you say, the, the, the ugliness that comes outside of you, it all starts inside of you. And luckily, James kind of has an idea of where these things come from. He says, don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You have passions waging war within you. That's the problem. And, and, and not like passion, like, like a passion for the Lord, but passions, negative ones. This is the, the continuation of the conversation from last week of like the, the peace-loving person versus the, the quarrelsome person, right? Peace-loving versus competitive envy and ambition from last week's text. That's the problem. There's a stuff in your heart, and if you don't deal with your heart, it's going to spill out into your relationships. That's the source of the problems you have relationally, and they're a big deal. And in fact, they're such a big deal, he calls them not just fights, he calls them wars, among you as well. In case you've ever thought that the first century church has it all together, they have wars among them. He says you want stuff and you don't have it. These people, the people that James is writing to, they seem to love the rich. They seem to have their eye on material things. They seem to be materialistic and and it touches every part of their lives from from their spiritual well-being to their relationships with other people in the church. He says, you desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight, you wage war. Now, I don't think these people, when you read this text, I don't think these people are actually murdering one another. I think like if they were really murdering one another, James would be a lot more harsh. It would be a little bit, little bit more dramatic of a thing than, it, than he makes it. I think that James has in mind Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount as he writes. Matthew 5, 21 and 22, Jesus says this. You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or his sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. When you want things that other people have and you don't have them, when you start to get this jealous covetousness in you, you begin to get a bit of a a nasty disposition towards people that have more than you. You murder them in your heart because you want what they have and you can't get it. You perhaps start to think, well, why do they have it? They don't deserve it. They don't work as hard as I do. I'm way better of a person than they are. You might not stop their beating heart, but you've committed a thousand homicides in yours. You wonder why you don't have what others have, James says. You don't have because you don't ask. And I think he means both you don't ask at all and also that when you do, you're not persistent in your asking. You see things and you want to fight and and claw to get them and you're never happy for the person that already has them. You ever go to the beach and, and at the beach at night, you'll see little kids doing this all the time with like flashlights and there's those little crabs, like the little white crabs. You ever, you ever go to the beach and see those? You ever catch them in a bucket? So when I was a senior in high school, I went on vacation with one of my best friends to Topsail Island. And my friend and his family, he has a lot of little siblings, and they were out on the beach and they were catching these crabs. And they, they'd put them in a bucket, probably about a dozen of these crabs. 
And the crab's first thought apparently was, I don't want to be in this bucket. I'm going to be out on the sand doing crab things on the beach. And so the crabs would attempt a jailbreak. One would climb on another, and then they would try to get out of this bucket. The bucket was wide enough for 12 crabs, but it wasn't very tall. And, and so theoretically, one crab standing on another crab could get out. And they could have all escaped except for one that wouldn't have a back to stand on. But I assume the other 11 could tip the bucket. You know, I don't know, I don't know how smart these crabs are. But they could free the last one. They could have all been saved, right, once these kids forgot about the bucket. But here's what I observed over and over again, and I never forgot it. I was 18 years old, and I was like, this is a sermon illustration one day, if anybody will ever let me preach. You won't believe it. Uh, A crab would climb on the back of another one, and it would reach its little claw up, and it would grab the lip of this bucket, and it would start to pull itself up. And another crab on the base of the bucket, would see it, and it would, I don't know, scuttle? Is that what you say a crab does? It would scuttle over, and it would lift a claw, and it would grab that crab, and it would yank it down to the bottom. I watched this happen over and over and over again. It was like the crabs were saying, if I'm not getting out of this bucket, nobody is. And this is what coveting and greed is like. You want something that someone else has, And so you'll just pull them down over and over and over again. You might not literally do it, but you do it in your head, you do it in your heart, you do it with your words. Instead of asking God and continuously asking God, which not only brings your wants to the feet of Jesus, the one who can give you what you need, but also hopefully will bring your heart into alignment with the heart of the one who sees what you really need and what will really be for your ultimate good. And so James says, you don't have because you don't ask. But also, you ask, and you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. This is why prayer is not just going to a genie, rubbing a lamp, and getting what you want. Prayer is meant to bring you and your will into alignment with God and His will. You ask, and you don't get something. We say this all the time here, and by we, I mean me, I guess. Tim Keller says, God gives you exactly what you would ask for if you knew what God knows. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motive. God knows, God knows to give you these things you ask for with the wrong motives. He knows that to do that would ultimately be to destroy you. It would be terrible for you. He withholds things for your good. So beware of selfish coveting. It will destroy you inside. It will destroy you outside. It will destroy your relationships. It'll hurt the church. The second thing James warns against that I want to look at this morning is friendship with the world. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. James literally says, we, we have you adulterous people. It, it, he literally says, you adulteresses. Now you might wonder why the feminine description for a church that is both men and women. But remember, the church is the bride of Christ. He's saying, when you run after the world, You are an adulterous bride. And the obvious next question that you might have as you hear this is, it says friendship with the world. Can't we just be friends? But remember, friendship in this first century culture is identifying with someone. So friendship with the world isn't loving the people in the world. It isn't friendship with sinners, which we should clearly be friends with sinners, since Jesus is, of course, the friend of sinners. Like us, by the way, right? But friendship with the world 
is identifying with the world. It's taking the world's core values and making them our core values. In this instance, jealousy and coveting and fighting and murdering, those are not kingdom values. They're things... They're the things of the world's value system, and we make them our values. When we do that, we put ourselves in the place of hostility towards God. We make ourselves enemies of God. We oppose God when we do that. He says in verse 5, Or do you think that it's without reason that the Scripture says, The Spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely. This is a very complicated phrase, both to maybe somebody reading the Bible for the first time. It's complicated to me. It's complicated to scholars. A cursory reading of this uh, might lead you to think God's a jealous God. He's jealous for his people. So don't identify with the world instead. And uh, if, if you do do that, the Holy Spirit inside of you will be the subject of intense envy, I guess. That would be like the cursory reading of that. Seems like there's something else here at play, though. We're on a little bit of shaky ground as we try to interpret. Yes, the Old Testament tells us that God is jealous for his people, but here it's unlikely that James suddenly switched from calling the church adulteresses to mentioning the Holy Spirit for the first time in this letter. Instead, one possible translation is that God jealously longs for the spirit that he made in us to live. God longs for us to jealously to be fully alive. And that doesn't come from friendship with the world. I think that's, that's a good crack at what this verse means. I certainly wouldn't hinge a message on this verse because there's a lack of clarity in what he's trying to convey here. But I think, I think there's something good about from the pulpit saying like, there's some verses in the scripture that we're just like, I don't know, I can, t- I can take my best stab at this. But over 2,000 years, we're still like, I'm, that's a tough one. Scholars would say the same thing. Verse 6, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Even still, even despite the flaws, despite the constant struggle with sin, we're told he gives greater grace. You need greater grace. You need more. He gives more. You need more. He has more for you. This is a restating of Proverbs three thirty four. It says, he mocks those who mock, but he gives grace to the humble. Or it's a restating of Psalm 138.6. Though the Lord is exalted, he takes note of the humble, but he knows the haughty only from a distance. Don't you see it? Do you want grace? Do you want grace? Tell God you need grace. Do you want grace? Bring yourself low. God, I'm a sinner. I can't get my act together. I can't do it on my own. I need your help. I know you did this for me and thank you for that because without you, I'm a lost cause. That's what it looks like to bring yourself low and to lift God up. Don't come to God and say, I mean, I've mostly got it together, God. I just need a little bit of grace. I'm a little messy sometimes, just every once in a while on the weekends, just a little forgiveness is all I need. I'm mostly okay. No, you're a big mess. You must understand this. You're a big mess, but God will clean you up. He can clean you up over and over again. As John puts it, grace upon grace upon grace. And if you hear this and you think, well, I'm in trouble because my, my most gripping sin, the one that I personally can't shake, is pride. The antidote for pride is humility. Humble yourself by telling him, I've been proud. I thought much of myself. I thought I could do this life without you. I thought I needed very little forgiveness. I thought I was better than my neighbor. I've been a fool. Guess what? In that moment when you bring that attitude to God, you're humble and there's grace for you. You walk away, you forget, you get proud again. 
Boom, hit your knees again. God, I did it again. Can you believe it? I got proud again. I'm a fool. I'm a mess. I need your help. Keep humbling yourself before God again and again and again. And then the third thing that we're warned about in James 4 this morning is to beware of judging one another. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters, it says in verse 11 here. We have to avoid a critical and judgmental spirit. We must avoid it. The church is somehow, not not this one, I mean just in general, the church in the world is a breeding ground for criticism and judgment. I imagine if you ask the perception of the church today from those outside of it, I think many would say that the church is judgmental. That term is a mixed bag in our culture, of course. The church has gotten that reputation, honestly, I do believe, but at the same time, the kind of judgment warned against here isn't about making a a moral decision about behaviors. The Bible is full of that. Christians should be discerning of that. There's no way around it. Rather, the type of judgmental attitude James is referring to here is, is about critical judging of other Christians. If anyone defames or judges a fellow believer... He actually is defaming and judging the law. Now you might think, what law and how so? When you you judge or defame a fellow believer, what you really do is judge or defame a law because in doing so, we're ignoring various commands in the law. For example, to judge and defame your neighbor is quite obviously to not love your neighbor as yourself. And so when you choose to think it's right and fine for you to not love your neighbor as yourself, you then become a judge over God's commands, which ones you think should really be obeyed, which ones you think can be discarded, which ones you think are more important, which ones you think are lesser important. In that way, we become judges over the word of God rather than letting the word of God judge and preside over us. We put ourselves over the scriptures rather than letting the scriptures be over us, telling us what is right for faith and practice, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right belief and right living. When talking about this law, when we ask the question, what law? When answering that question, Craig Blomberg notes, notes, uh, and this is important, he says this. The fact that law remains anarthrous throughout this section, by the way, look up anarthrous this week. Uh, I'll let you figure that out. Anarthrous throughout this section suggests that perhaps James speaks qualitatively here, seeing God's will as law. Indeed, instead of thinking it's the Torah by itself, the, the first five books of the Old Testament might be where your mind went when you read this passage. Instead of thinking it's the Torah by itself, he may be harking back to the Torah as fulfilled in Christ, the gospel message, and the new covenant as qualitatively royal law, as in James 2, 8 through 13. Law here seen as not the Torah alone, but the Torah fulfilled in Christ, the gospel, and the new covenant. It gives us a fuller picture of what you're disobeying, and an even graver picture of what you judge when you decide exactly what you're going to care about obeying and what you're not. Verse 12 says says there's one lawgiver and there's one judge. And in case you had the idea that you were that person, he continues, there's one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? When you judge and condemn your neighbor, neighbor, you, you become judge over your neighbor. And guess what? God is actually the one who will judge all. You're putting yourself in God's place. So if you put yourself in that position to judge over the world, over the word and the commands of God and your neighbor, you basically put yourself over God himself. You become your own God. 
If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there's only one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and destroy. And it is not you. You are not that person. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Next time you go to judge your neighbor, it might be a good practice to think about the things that God has done. Maybe look at nature for a second. Look out your window. Can you make a tree? Can you make a planet? Then look in the mirror for a second. Did you create yourself? Do you make your own heartbeat? Can you sustain your own heartbeat? And while you're looking into the mirror, look into your own eyes and just ask the question, who are you? Who are you to judge? The only judge, the only one who can save or destroy is the one who created you and the one you judge and slander. He can, he can save both you and that person you judge and slander. And when you realize that, you can reserve judgment. Not moral judgment, of course. We, we don't look at like Hitler or a serial killer or something and say, well, who am I to judge? Right? Of course not. We read the scriptures and we understand them right. When we understand them rightly, we can determine right from wrong. But we don't go to the next step and condemn and slander. So who can save and destroy? The answer is not us. And so when we see abhorrent moral behavior, we go not to every person who might think it's juicy gossip to hear about it. We go not to every person who might take our side on the issue. But we go to the one who can save us and the one who can save the person that we find worthy of judgment. We go to God, the good judge, both to maybe ask for justice, but to also pray for those who we believe deserve judgment because we too have deserved judgment many times in our lives. But thanks be to God that he sent his son and we receive mercy. And we should plead with God that those people too will receive mercy in their time of need. So then, we should beware of the selfish coveting, verses one through three tells us. We should beware of this friendship with the world that looks like identifying with the world and its value system. Verses four through six tell us. We should beware of becoming judgmental, critical slanderers, verses 11 and 12 tell us. Those things are to be avoided. Those things are not proper and fitting for God's people. What then should we do? Strangely enough, it's tucked into the middle of these verses. Verses 7 through 10 tells us this. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Rather than all these other things we should be avoiding, instead of them, submit to God. Rather than becoming a judge of God's word, submit to the word of God and the God of the word. Bring yourself under his rule and reign in humble submission. He's a king. You get to be his kingdom subject. Order your, life, your lives around God's kingship and his rule. Resist the devil. In one sense, this is simply submitting to God's rule. That's how we resist the devil. Don't, don't indulge in these things James is warning you about. Instead, resist. They come from the devil. Please hear me. The, the, the gospel isn't against effort. The gospel isn't against effort. It's not against trying. The gospel is against believing that your effort is what saves you. That's what the gospel's against. So try, resist, make every effort not to fall into the schemes of the devil. This might, be, this might mean shutting down conversations that will lead you to judge and slander. This might mean avoiding social media. It might mean not having a smartphone. I, I don't know what it looks like 
for you. It depends what the, the devil's cunning schemes are that he works against you. But James warns us, resist like crazy. Resist like crazy. And the result, the devil will flee from you. Don't see this passage to be about something dramatic like uh, exorcism or some dramatic stand against the devil in prayer or anything like that. Well, those things have their place. They are not the norm. Resisting the devil, like I said, looks a lot like taking yourself out of places of temptation when it's possible. When it's possible. Jesus couldn't leave the desert. He couldn't leave Gethsemane. You may find yourselves in places like that over the course of your life, but in general, like, don't be alone with your girlfriend all the time. Don't entertain conversations that will lead you to slander people. Don't hang out with people who you always seem to be falling into sin with, etc., etc. Resist the devil by keeping yourself from the most tempting situations. And while doing so, draw near to God. Open the word, read, pray. Do the things that put you relationally close to the God of the Bible. And the, the shocking words of James are that this God will also draw near to you. If you're anything like me, you meet that, that statement with the question, why would this God want anything to do with me? But when you come close, you realize that he's coming close to you. This God who sings over his children, he delights, he delights in nearness with us. And nearness is a possibility for God's children. Does God feel far away? How often are you drawing near to him? And this drawing near isn't just spiritual disciplines, though. It's obedience. There's a relational proximity component to obedience. You draw close to God both by the disciplines and by a life lived God's ways. Not perfectly, obviously, you never will be, but you can read the Bible until you are blue in the face and also live in complete friendship with this world and then shockingly feel like God is far from you. Why? Because you're not drawing near when, when you're in willing and defiant disobedience. I heard Francis Chan once share a hypothetical that went something like this that feels appropriate this morning. He talked about like if he told his kid to clean their room. And he went up, he went up to their room and their room was just filthy. And he said, hey, I asked you to clean your room. And what if his kid, before he could finish the sentence, said, oh yes, I know, I've, I, I memorized it, exactly how you said it. And then they quoted, will you please tidy up your room this evening? You know, dad, 316. Okay, so I guess he goes back downstairs, and the next day, here's a, here's a commotion upstairs, and he hears music, and he goes upstairs, and his, his child is singing a song about how they will obey their dad no matter what, and even mentioning the command to clean their room. He listens inside the door, and he's like, oh, they must have cleaned their room. So he opens the door and looks, room is filthy. He's like, clearly frustrated. What are you doing? I just asked you to clean your room. He's, and the kid says, yes, I know. I was singing an emotionally charged song. about. brought a couple tears to my eyes, honestly, thinking about you and how much I love you and this command that you gave me. I'll get to it for sure. Later that night, some people come to the house, some, some of his kid's peers, and they rush upstairs to the kid's room. And so he thinks, well, they surely, they surely have cleaned their room like they're having company over. They would never have company over if they didn't clean their room. So he goes up, and they're all sitting in the filth, notebooks open, talking, talking excitedly, writing things down. Because your room's a mess. I told you to clean this room. What are you doing? 
And the kid says, yeah, I know, dad, isn't it great? I had all my friends come over. We're studying your command about cleaning the room, talking about what it would actually look like if we lived this way, if we cleaned this room. Wouldn't that be incredible? Change everything, right? Insane story, right? Isn't it? Despite how much the kid knows the commands of their father, despite how much the kid celebrates the commands of the father, memorizes the commands of the father, there's some relational strain there, some relational distance. Why? The child knew the command, sang about the command, memorized the command, had a study around the command. Never obeyed it. Never obeyed it. How often are we like that? Attend church, attend Bible study, hands raised in worship, not obeying the commands of the Father. And somehow we think we're drawing near. Drawing near is so much more than knowledge and emotion. We know the place where our heart rests by how we live. What is your life telling you about the nearness of your heart to God's heart? Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. This is how you draw near. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Repent, repent of your double-mindedness. Make a big deal of your sin. Jesus had to die for it and make an even bigger deal than of God's grace, knowing that it's bigger than all your sin. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Have heavy-heartedness about your sin. Don't take it lightly. Don't view it as minor. The wages of sin are death. We deserve death for our sin. Our most minor sins get the death penalty. We sin against a holy God. It's a big deal. Humble yourself before the Lord and he'll exalt you. Mourn and weep now at your sin and one day when you're face to face with God, there will be no more mourning. No more weeping. You will be overjoyed. You will know in that moment the enormity of your sin and what it costs, but you will know even more the magnificent grace that rescued you from all of it. The antidote for the sins that plague us, I believe, in a sense, is to care about what God cares about. Don't minimize your sin. Don't shrug it off. James is telling you to take your depravity seriously and then to believe the gospel. Repent, knowing that Jesus died for you and that your sins are forgiven. Mourn and grieve and weep over your sin. Rejoice and celebrate and marvel then over the mercy of God who sent his son to die for your sins. Michelle, you can come up. We remember the mercy of God every Sunday as we take communion. You know, it's mercy. It's mercy that God sent his son to die for our sins. God sent a substitute. We deserve death He sent someone who didn't deserve death to die that we might live. That is called mercy. That is like the textbook definition of mercy. And if you're in Christ, you also are getting this mercy. We as a church believe in substitutional atonement. Christ died for you. He died in your place. So if you owed a speeding ticket, let's say. Let's say you owed like for a hundred speeding ticket, 100 parking tickets, speeding tickets, you wouldn't have a license anymore, like 100 parking tickets. You're guilty. You owe $10,000 in parking tickets somehow. And you go to court and the judge says, uh, you know, do, do you drive this car? And you say, yes, your honor. This car that's in your name? Yes, your honor. 
Did you receive these parking tickets over and over and over again? You feel kind of silly at this point. Yes, Your Honor. Did you pay these parking tickets? I did not, Your Honor. I did not. You owe $10,000. Guilty, you plead. There's no way around it. I'm guilty. That is all true. Then the judge, maybe the bailiff comes up and whispers something to the judge. And the judge says, uh, turns out somebody has come and paid $10,000 in your stead. Your fee has been paid. Now, if the judge says, what's that? Somebody paid $10,000, thank you very much, but you didn't pay the $10,000. I'm still going to collect from you. What would that be? That would be unjust. You shouldn't have to pay twice. Your debt was paid already. That's the gospel. You owed a debt you couldn't pay. The justice of God demands that it be paid. God sent Jesus instead to pay it. Now, if you're in Christ and your debt has been paid, it's only just that you don't pay it again. God isn't collecting double payments. God is a just judge. He isn't collecting more than he's owed. It's the mercy of God that sent a substitute in your place to pay your debt. And it's the justice of God that looks at what Jesus did and acquits you of everything that you're truly guilty of because your debt has been paid. It's mercy initially working for you and then it's justice after that. Isn't that incredible? And so we remember the work of Jesus on our behalf every Sunday when we remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and after he gave thanks, he broke it saying, this is my body broken for you, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup again, giving thanks. He said, this is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. This morning, as we take communion, it's a good time to maybe sit and just think about the three categories of sin we talked about this morning. The three things James warns about this morning, judgment, coveting, friendship with the world. Or maybe if those don't hit home, maybe some other sin you're dealing with. And maybe this is a time this morning where, where your mind is already on God and you have nowhere else to go to just sit and just for a moment even, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's painful, to just sit and take your sin seriously. Mourn the sin that you struggle with all the time. Mourn what it costs Jesus for you to be forgiven of it. And then after you've felt that heaviness in your heart, because sometimes we don't do this. We shortcut the process. We, we sin, and to think about it too much would hurt. But we know Jesus died for us, so we can, just, we can just kind of circumvent the process. This morning, don't do that. Just sit with your sin and what it costs Jesus. And then when you're ready, as you walk up to take communion, remember the gospel message. And let that heaviness turn to something else. Turn from weeping to celebration. God sent Jesus for me, for me personally, for Joey. God, you love to forgive sinners. God, you sing over me. You've seen my life and the mess it is and you sing over me. You chose me. Are you kidding me? Turn your mourning into worship. But don't shortcut the mourning to get to the celebration. So we take communion here every week at the table by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup. You can find the communion elements uh, towards the back on my left there, kind of in the middle of the room. And if you require gluten-free communion on the right side towards the back by the sound booth, you'll find that.
We take communion here kind of just at our own pace. So Michelle's going to play music in the background. Whenever you're ready to take communion, you can. Uh, my friend Joe's over here to my left. If you need prayer this morning, whether it be for something you're struggling with or just to come alongside you in prayer for a concern you have, he's here. He'd love to just put a hand on your shoulder and pray for you, pray with you. Um, I'm going to pray, and then you're dismissed to do what you need to do. Father, I thank you for just for your mercy, for the fact that um, despite the sin that that has a grip on us sometimes, the ways we struggle, that you love us, that you sing over us, that you, you, you love to forgive your children. God, that part feels so good to us, but, but sometimes it's weakened. We, we don't celebrate as much as we could. We don't revel in your mercy as much as we could because we haven't, we haven't really thought about what our sin cost you what we deserve for our sin, how big of a deal it is that we even sin. So this morning, I pray that we would take our sin seriously. Not that it would throw us into doubt of whether you forgive us. Not that it would bring us to a place of self-loathing because to, to hate ourselves would be to hate someone that you dearly love. But they would bring us to a place of, of greater celebration, of, of greater thanksgiving, of a greater gratitude for for what Jesus has done to, to even understand really what that means. And so God, for anybody here this morning that doesn't yet know you, that can't yet celebrate that forgiveness, I pray that I pray that you'd bring them to yourself this morning, God. I pray that you'd meet us at the communion table uh, and in this time of quiet with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to our Sunday service. If you're interested in joining us in the future, you can find us at 17766 Cleveland Avenue Northwest on Sunday mornings at 10. Additionally, we host a meal every first and third Sunday after service in order to fellowship with one another. Visit aseatforyou.org for more information. We hope you'll join us next week. Go in peace.